He once considered a career interviewing serial killers. What drew you to that? What made you consider that? And then how do you, how does that relate to, or how does that compare to what you do now? I've always been super fascinated in behavioral psych. So I still, I don't interview serial killers, but I still talk to people and, and I'm fascinated by what led them to where yeah. they are. So I switched over to kinesiology after two years of forensic psychology. Why do we look at the car accident sort of thing? Because if you look, cause we're able to track these things, especially actually for females, females love murder. It's so weird. Yeah. Point of, it's the point of memes too. Cause it's like, you know, they did a skit on Saturday Night Live. They're like, hey, I've got Saturday night. My boyfriend's not around. I'm going to stay in, pour a nice glass of, of red wine and watch nothing but murder. I was going <laughs> to ask you your favorite serial, serial killer, but I, we can't wait to the There were 25 years of experience and a career in lecturing at Simon Fraser University. She is a powerhouse in the field of especially renowned for her return to sport methodologies and unconventional problem solving skills. I, you know, conventional. Uh, let's dive in with Carmen Bott. Did I pronounce that correctly, Carmen? Did I get that? Right? You did. Thank you so much, Jimmy. You absolutely did. It's great. Well, welcome Appreciate to the show. Thanks. First thing I always ask guests is, what are we drinking? That's the, I get the hard questions out of the way first, but you look like you're at work. I am. And I just got off, I just okay. got off field with an athlete. So I'm drinking water with some New, like, Neo squirt I like in it. it. It's fine. not new, We don't drink. It's tasty. We don't Here we go. Let me ask you this. What would you be drinking if you were like home by the fire, whatever, as my dad walks in the background? What, what would I you would be drinking a green bottled beer, 100%. What do you like? What's green bottled that you like? Well, of, of the American variety, I do not mind the odd Rolling Rock. Yeah, Rolling Rock's not Right? But I do prefer the green bottled beer from Italy. So Peroni would be great. my top yeah. choice. And the second choice would be um, anything from France, really, in a green bottle. Rolling Rock. Mm. So just before we hit record, you didn't know that my background was in radio broadcasting. So I mentioned I that, not. but I never know when people join the show or find out or whatever. You know, yeah. I used to make a big deal about it because it was like it was my background. But then you feel like you talk about it enough and you stop talking about it. But you bring up Rolling Rock. Rolling Rock used to have this mega event once a year, and it was yeah. kind of like Coachella, but they called it the Rolling Rock Town Fair. And essentially, I think it was like a two-day festival, if memory serves me, in Robe, Pennsylvania, where Rolling Rock is brewed over on the west side of Pennsylvania. And I okay. went to it once, and it was mind-blowing. And this was like a way for a beer brewer, a beer company, to really just be like, this is what we're about. And now I'm thinking about it, I am like, heartbroken that they don't do that anymore but that was that was a so, great... so it's the rolling rock culture I it guess, was that, that was the idea that was, that was the idea which is cool. like, let me just show you exactly what we're into and then here it is um, did it make you drink more rolling rock after that experience that two, or... that those two days it sure did and yeah because then rolling yeah, rock was go. the sponsor of the radio station so they just uh they they you know they hooked us up with stuff and beers and stuff like that so yeah course but i'm so oh, great about it 30 you know, 20 years later all right so i i mentioned the intro your majesty where's that come from oh, you gotta sure where's that come i from? i change i change the you know sort of my title daily actually so mm -hmm. it really depends on my mood right. um my husband often just refers to me as the angry viking so <laughs> it it really does depend on the audience and the day and 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 the mood so i i've just felt like saying her majesty when you when i filled out your form yeah in in radio you had two choices you have an on-air name and you're sure of it and you're like that's my name okay. or if you are even a little wishy-washy an on-air name will be assigned to you and it will not be great i'm telling you that that's how it was well, absolutely well I mean, it's just like team sport right you can't nickname yourself no you, can't. you know no you're no like that's actually forbidden yeah. in team sport and if you do then you're a weirdo so a weirdo. you know the fact that other people got to have that privilege of giving you a, a nickname yep. or a code name. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. First round brought <laughs> to you by our friends from Owens Recovery Science, Johnny and his team. Uh, if you're looking to get certified in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training, Johnny Owens and his team have done it all over the country, all over the world. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. They also have their own podcast where they just dive deep into BFR stuff, as the cool kids are calling it. It's called the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Very easy to remember. Um, okay. So I want to start with uh, strength training for female athletes. You you emphasize or you focus on or you say female athletes need to get stronger. Why is that so? Why is that so important? I agree, but I want to know why you think that is vital and important. Well, I think it's kind of like 
strength training to me for the female athlete is sort of like being an underdog. Like a lot of times female athletes can move well and maybe have great skill in their sport. Um, but it's, it's the ACE card that we don't see, but makes them a lot more resistant to potential injury. But it also has that confidence boosting effect. If you, you know, or you're fairly certain that the person that you are I don't know, defending or taking on one-on-one -on -one in a situation, if you know you're physically superior, or maybe you're certain about that, I think that that is related to risk-taking ability and performance in, in sports. So I wouldn't be arrogant and say that, oh, if your squad is higher, you're going to perform better, like direct correlation. You know, we know that squatting isn't the same as playing field lacrosse, right. for example, but we do know that girls that lift weights and get stronger from that process um, have a different attitude um, about their bodies. And I think that that should be celebrated. But some of the barriers with strength training, you know, also have to do with with females, maybe, you know, feeling that it's not socioculturally right. acceptable to be right. in the weight room lifting and grunting and groaning and right. doing all that stuff. So that was actually where I was going next. How do you, number one, tease that out? like find out if that is the case, right? And then how do you overcome yeah. that? Or how do you, you can't make someone do so, but how do you maybe, yeah. you know, lay out a car, lay out the path in front of them and say, this, there's two paths, doing it, not doing it, and here's the pros and cons. Usually the best way to approach the subject um, with maybe a more hesitant population is to start by talking to them about, you know, what are their goals, but yeah. then what do those goals actually look like? And then describe what, you know, physically dominating an opponent looks like, and, and then asking them and being curious, well, what do you think the path is to getting to those particular goals? And oftentimes when you present it that way, the athlete will sort of come to the conclusion themselves. And then you ask them, would you like to work with me and have me show you how to do these types of exercises, X, yeah. Y, and Z? I think the worst thing we can do is be advice givers. As much as we're all tempted to no, do that, right? No. And say, hey, you know what? You really need to lift weights. You really need to get yeah. stronger. Oftentimes, people are quite aware that they maybe are not strong enough. Um, and they're looking more on the guidance of the how to do that safely and effectively. And the biggest difference in the adolescent population between boys and girls is that girls tend to like to feel proficient at something before they engage in it. So you might need to start with the, just the movement itself, right? And then ask them, would you like to try this movement with some load? How much load would you like to try? And then you could say something like, did you realize that the, what's the maximum weight of a, of a suitcase when you go to the airport? Mm, right? Context. And then they'll say, oh, they'll know, right? Because right. 50 pounds or, or whatever. Okay. Do you like to go shoe shopping when you're on holidays? Context. <laughs> what girl doesn't? You know, oh, yeah. OK, so if you filled your suitcase full of shoes that you bought in New York or, or London or wherever you went traveling, you know, would you be able to carry that suitcase? Because you definitely got to get the shoes home. Obviously. Right. Obviously, because they're amazing. And next thing you know, it, you've got them doing a suitcase deadlift with 50 pounds. So sometimes it's just about painting a picture and, yeah. and it's more about strong encouragement and empowerment versus you know, just talking about, well, the benefits of uh, right. strength training are blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that's boring and nobody really wants to listen to that. We're, we're not even 15 minutes in. And I think everything you just said was sort of a masterclass in um, a mini masterclass in motivational interviewing, starting with the end in mind, leaving, you know, making it a, a question and not a statement, uh, putting it in context and letting them make their decision. Right. I mean, did you see that movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio? I did. Yeah. It was like, the yeah. crux of that was that he could enter people's dreams. Yeah. But the idea was, or the crux of that spoiler alert, if you haven't maybe fast forward, if you haven't watched inception, but the idea yes. was it had to be the person's idea. You couldn't just plant your idea. It had to be their version. Right. And so I thought this was like, Absolutely. Kind of, like a cool premise, obviously, right. It was cool sci-fi, but the idea, the premise was like, yeah, if it isn't my idea, I'll probably do it maybe a little bit just to shut the other person up or get them away from me or whatever. And then eventually I'm just going to stop. But if it's my idea and ownership, like context of shoes, context of fear, 
I didn't realize that about females. Is that like that's a thing? Is they want to they they generally want to be more proficient before they start. Boys are just we're just sort of dumb. We're like I generally, yeah, but yeah, boys will be like you get your ninth grader with the broccoli hair, right? That just right. picks it up and just starts savagely lifting it. Who does this look right? Go wrong. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's boys really value um they value competition and hierarchy. So it, it and it's I don't know if it's in their DNA or if it's socialization. I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist um, by any means, but I have a lot of training in mental performance and have done training in, in motivational interviewing and had learned that, yeah, people are absolutely resistant to your advice. So maybe don't give it. Um, maybe just ask very powerful questions and be curious mm -hmm. and go from there. Yeah. I mean, did you watch yeah. Ted Lasso at all? You must've seen Ted Lasso, yes. right? I mean, when he said Absolutely. That, that one scene, I think it was the last episode of season one where he's playing, where he's shooting the darts and he's like going to town and he's like, be curious, not judgmental. And like, I yep. watch this, I work with a lot of organizations like APTA organizations or companies and PTs yeah. specifically love to do this, which is what you just talked about, or you said, don't, you know, why you shouldn't, but it's a great example, which is we love to say, well, research shows, and we start with that. And research as if they're going to value it as much as we do. Correct. And actually, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> if you want to go meta meta, I was reading something on behavior change science. Research shows that starting something with research shows does not help because it goes, okay, here's one more thing. What are eggs good for it me? It works yeah. with me because I'm a scientist. Right, right, I'll be right, like, oh, right. now you have my ear, but you got to know your audience, Correct. right? Like you do with a 15 year old or even a 25 year old professional athlete they're like look how are you just going to be able to create separation with this guy like that's what i want to do well, i feel like the okay. context example you gave is 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 also there's a parallel in terms of research which is like if you're not someone like you if you're not a sports scientist right someone's standing on a field standing on a pitch and they're hearing someone say well research shows it just feels so far away it's like yeah but i'm here you know what i mean it's like that's a lab and if i'm not in the world of science i don't understand i'm like oh, okay but like what do i give me something practical what do i do here so just delete to say everything that is the research right but don't say that like, yeah. i'm not saying lie or put it in or dumb it down i also don't say dumb it down put it in better context if you're talking to someone who likes shoe shopping put it in shoe context i mean i used to work for an organization uh fox rehab that specialized in treating older adults and they would ask questions in context of grandkids vacations yes. um a lot of clinicians would do things in weights like gallons of milk it's like we're gonna lift this weight weight's too heavy this is less than a gallon of milk you want to be able to put your milk away in the fridge and like oh well yeah, yeah. next thing you know when you know it context leads to adoption who knew but starting with well the evidence who knew? the evidence says that's like the equivalent of like, well, and you know, the evidence is not very strong at exercise prescription on the whole anyways. Right. So yeah, it's like, it's really weak in some areas, you know, strength training is fairly good because that's so easy to monitor and measure, but in, right. in other facets, like even neuromotor stuff, like balance training, okay. give a lecture on balance training for older adults yesterday. And I just said, we have no idea how many sets and reps, right. no clue. There are no guidelines. So then what? Take that for what it's worth, right? Well, yeah. It's just like if you were going to teach someone how to dance, it's not like you're doing three sets of 10. Right. That's a good example. Of the, of the blah, blah, blah dance. You're just going to put on the music. You're going to explore some movements. Then when you're kind of sick of doing those, you might do some other ones. Learning is, um, it's messy and it's very nonlinear. Yeah. And so is rehab. And so as long as people... When you put it in that context, that, when, when, we, when we try to make it really <laughs> clean and neat is when we're sort of, I mean, there's no... We don't know. So why are we trying to um, why are we trying to formularize some things that we don't know how to do that, right? Totally. And then you're dealing with humans and humans uh, are just uh, pure chaos. We are. We really chaos. are. That's like kind of the if we've had too many rolling rocks, right? Right. Or not. <laughs> we're, or, we're pure chaos. <laughs> or not enough rolling rocks. You never you never know. Or uh, not enough. Okay. So we're now we're talking about a threshold. Fair. Right. I get you. Yeah. I will I will begin this research immediately. Um mm -hmm. let, me, let me switch to ACL. Uh, you say that while ACL injuries can't be prevented, right, risk can be mitigated, which is good. So what are what are yeah. key strategies like for mitigation? Because like every once in a while on Twitter, you'll get people who go round and around on like a word. And I love specificity and language and things like that. But when you see people, it's like injury prevention. And they'll go around like you can't prevent an injury. Okay, okay, okay. 
but we can mitigate risk, right? So I'm being careful with the words. Right. Key strategies yes, for mitigation. Yeah, you have to be, or else they'll come after you because we're we're recording this stuff. Okay. They will. They will. It's mean. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I, so your question is, yeah. what are the things we could do? What are what are the controllables? Yeah, there, and there are a few. And one of them you've already identified is that, you know, perhaps an athlete isn't strong enough to handle the forces that are involved in the activities that they want to be able to do. There is a big difference in mechanical load in jogging uh, versus decelerating, for example. So and there's often a mismatch between what's um, what an athlete or an individual is exposed to in their training setting and the volume that actually occurs in sport. So if we use decelerations, for an, for example, in all sports except American football, and when I say all sports, I mean sports that involve, um, you know, they're invasive in nature. So you're sharing opponent or turf with your opponent or space with your opponent. They're stopping and starting. It's intermittent usually a team sport. So we're, we're kind of in that vein where a lot of ACLs happen. We actually know, because um, good scientists have actually measured the number of times athletes decelerate, and it's more frequently than accelerating. And then if we know that decelerating has about three times the forces of an acceleration, it's more meta- it's more mechanical stress on the body versus like a metabolic stress on the body um, that acceleration um, begets. Right there, we have if we have a mismatch in in exposures, so we've only exposed someone to let's just use the number 50, 50 decelerations in a training week. Yet in their game, coaches like game went into overtime, you're a starter, you're not coming off the field. And next thing you know, you've done 200 and you wonder why, you know, the the knees like, okay, I'm I'm kind of I need a timeout. (laughs) I'm done. So there's that piece. Um, there's also some, you know, sort of neuromuscular factors in terms of um, the control of the knee position on on cutting and changing of, di- of direction. So we we do know that there is a relationship between extreme valgus um, moment in the knee at about 30 degrees of knee flexion, especially when there's no glute. Um, strength on the same side and the trunk itself is leaning in the opposite direction. So there's like a physical component to that. And then there's also a technical component to that. And last time I looked, Jimmy, there weren't too many sport coaches out there teaching athletes how to cut, how to land, how to change direction. And so what happens is these athletes hurt themselves. They end up in a clinic, they end up seeing their, their PT. And then after you know, four or five months, they come and see me. And I'm now teaching them for the very first time how to slow down, how to cut, how wow. to change direction um, properly, where to put their foot. Um, because sidestep cutting in at least in rugby is one of the biggest triggers for an ACL trauma and with non-contact trauma. So basically the foot hits the ground and it's too far outside the center of mass. It's going to be outside the center of mass, but it's too far. And you know, there, that was a strategy an athlete got away with, you know, maybe a hundred times and now the hundred and first time right. they're not getting away with it, you know, and I'm sure that there's some genetic susceptibility. There's definitely um, the influence of, of gender, right. Or female athletes being um, at higher risk, but actually adolescents right now are leading the race. They seem to be the highest risk. And that's really sad because that's um, that's new. And uh, that tells me that maybe some of these young people are, are, are being asked to do things with their bodies that their bodies aren't ready for physically. I was going to ask you why. Speculation, obviously. So, so maybe like, I mean, I know just in my local area, kids are playing year round. They're playing the same thing yeah. year round. They're doing thing. from three, yeah. two, three, four different teams year round or doing camps or showcases almost year round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine that. That definitely plays a role. It's hard to say, you know, if we use the research according to the research, right? Like this idea of does something cause something? Because it's really like a, I just sort of use examples like a huge pot and you're just making stew and you're throwing in everything, including the beer in the stew, right? And and part of those ingredients in that stew is is the lack of exposure to the right things. So heavy lifting, 
And that could be body weight, actually, right. because if you can't do a pistol squat, you're probably not very strong, right? And it, it could be the change of direction stuff. But then it's also the other side of the coin where it's too much of the wrong stuff, right? So kids doing a lot of endurance exercise. So I, I teach a growth and motor development course at the university, and, and we talk a lot about um what would be appropriate in terms of exercise prescription for children and adolescents. So children are typically aged five to 11, typically, and then adolescents would be, or youth are 12 to 17 years old. And one of the rules of thumb is whatever age you're at, that's the number of hours a week of total training, right? But that still doesn't tell us very much, right? right? Like if, if I'm training a 14 year old and they're doing 14 hours a week of a basketball, a lot right? That's a lot of load because they're jumping, cutting, changing direction. Now, if we took that 14 hours and did maybe half the time was the higher intensity doses and the other half was walking through the, the motion offense and maybe doing some shooting and some ball handling drills, then okay, now, now that's probably acceptable. But we don't, we don't really know exactly what the doses should be, but what we need to do better is just monitor how kids are adapting to the doses, right? So, you know, looking for, well, I'm a big proponent of, of adolescent athletes seeing a PT, you know, every couple of weeks, just a check-in, check under the hood, like check for excessive tone in certain areas of their body, check for a lack of mobility in a joint, right? In the, in the ankles and in the hips, keep checking these things. And then we get a a bigger picture of what we might be dealing with. I have a, I have a 12 year old, he'll be 13 next month and he's going through his peak height velocity right now. So he's grown three inches since August Wow! and it's November, right? That's and it is, it's really interesting to observe. And what I observe is that he's getting to his muscles are tight. His connective tissue is tight because his bones are growing faster than the rate at adaptation of the tissue. So I have training in this area. I know what to do. I know that this isn't the time to do more basketball. It's the time to do some recovery and stretching and mobility work, right? And when he does those things, he tells me, he's like, I feel really good. My body feels really good. If he doesn't do those things, then he's like, my calves are killing me, mom. Like they really, they, they, it hurts to stand up from sitting too long. These, these are clues. Right. Right. But maybe the coach, but I have training in this area. So do you, or uh, your listeners probably do, but how can we help these parents? Because they're the ones paying for right. all this stuff. And my question to them is why do you need to have little Jimmy or Johnny in 14 some, hours a week cause, basketball? Because some is good. So more is better. And because the other kid who beat him out for a spot last year is doing two teams. So we're going to do three because three is 33% better than two. And it becomes like a so people have lost their the people have lost their minds. Some some places. Like, I mean, I hope this is the far end of the pendulum swing. I hope so too. And it's just as bad in Canada. It's the same. What sports you know, in Canada are, are at that level? Hockey has to be because hockey. Even, yeah. Even I, I used States. to train hockey players at the age of 14 that had sports agents. Get out of here. At 14 years old. Yep. And this was 20 years ago when I first started coaching. Wild. Um, basketball is the, is, is another one where kids are playing on their high school team and they're also playing on a club team. And then, the, and then they're playing all year, like you said, and the summertime is typically the off season of basketball, but nope, they're playing and they're traveling, right. you know, to well, other countries to play. Now there's NIL deals. So like the money now just moved four years closer in theory, right? Because, and there's more of it or it's, or there's at least a wider funnel for it because I don't have to necessarily go pro. So a scholarship isn't necessarily the end of the line for a lot of these kids. So it it's start earlier because there's money here. There could be money here. So there's could money. Could be, but the chances are no, so low. No. But and that's what people it's it's an odds game. So it's I don't know what the right. stats are, but it's like one percent, I believe. Yeah. Um and so I think we need to be a little bit more realistic about what those odds look like and at the end of the day i have a colleague in toronto who uh, trains a lot of very high level lacrosse players and a lot of them go pro and they play in the nll which is a north american league and he every once in a while i'll get a text from him and it'll say so does your son still like you and i said yep 
still likes me. How about your son? Does he still like you? Yep, still likes me. And it's a little bit of this sort of joke that we have in that at the end of the day, you know, are these kids enjoying the fact that they're exhausted? Do they want to get up at five o'clock in the morning when they're 15? Right. I mean, you know, I heard somebody say it way better than me, which was your goal as a a parent. I don't have kids myself, but your goal as a parent uh, is to raise really great adults is to create or help create Mm -hmm. or put kids on a path to becoming really great adults. And Mm -hmm. listen, it's sport can absolutely do that. But it's the same oh, yes. thing, right? Some is good and more is better. I liked your stew analogy. I thought that was good. Is there not enough of the good stuff or too much of the bad? It's, it, everything's a, a mix. You talked about monitoring, and we just did an episode with Matt Tuttle. Matt had, the, uh, in his career, worked with the Denver Nuggets. He worked with uh, the New York Red Bulls. So he's been around. And now he's doing his PhD and really sp- he's focusing on um, athlete tracking. And I just assumed, like, the NBA, Major League, like, soccer, you might, there's chips. And he's like, we have a lot. But he's like, I'll be, he's like, I'll be dead honest. Everybody just thinks we have all this data. He's like, we're getting more of it. He said, there's a problem is we don't have enough of the right data and we have so much of it. We got to figure out how to, like, make sense of the noise. So he's like, now we've got all this stuff coming in. So that's why he actually went to school, back to school to get his PhD in this because he's like, this is this is where we think we are, but we're not. It was where a lot of people assume where we are. Was we know exactly everything going on with these players. He's like, we know more than we did a couple of years ago, but knowing more, collecting more would be good, and being able to collect the right stuff would be better. And then knowing what to do with it once you've got it all, he's like, well, that's that's the final step. Is is that? So it, it's not as much as as much as you can measure and chart and and, and calculate. Um, there's still a lot of variables there. There are, and, and everybody has a different tolerance level, Correct. right? Genetically, again, yeah. And people have different nutrition, correct? You know, and so what you're putting into your bodies, and how much you're sleeping, so the yeah. recovery side. But one thing I always tell young coaches or young therapists, because I I do a lot of education with with physiotherapists, I said, look, like go to practice, or better yet, like when I sort of worked with Canadian women's uh, wrestling team, I was with Wrestling Canada for five years. I decided, you know what, I'm going to have to learn this sport because I came from softball and basketball. So I decided to learn to wrestle at, yep. like in my late 30s. And I yeah. joined a jujitsu type gym so and cool. I learned pancreation and it was awful and I didn't like it, but I did it. Yep. Yep. But I, what I understood intimately were the demands, yeah. intimately. And I also also realized that I never need to see my chiropractor again because boom, when boom. someone is like crushing your rib cage, you get an adjustment for free. Yeah. My, uh, I, Every worked, session. I worked for my first clinic at a PT school. Uh, the owner, Carlos, was big into mm-hmm. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he would talk about it so okay. much. And finally, I'm sort of like you, where I'm like, you come in here in your gi and you got all the, you know, bruises. I'm like, I'll like, am, am I going to get killed? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, we'll set you up with like a class and I'll make sure everybody, you know. And it was really cool. Like it was fun and it was interesting. Totally, totally not my thing. But I went yep. two or three times and I was like, this is cool. Like I, you know, it's when I was younger, it was really easy to make, it's easy to make fun of people who like are adults, but build Legos or like, like weird dancing or whatever. I'm really excited. I'm just, if you like something, even if I don't like it, I'm just like, I'm so glad that you like that. So I was excited to, totally. for the Brazilian jujitsu yeah. people, but I was like, I'm not coming here anymore because this hurts. And I knew yeah. they were all like going at 10%. People sweat too much. It's gross. Yeah. I am also, you can't tell now cause I'm not really doing anything, but I'm, I'm more of an endurance guy. But I have this part in me that got turned on when I started doing marathons where I, the minute my body is like, oh, we're doing something. And then I am immediately just the sweatiest person in the room. It was me and this guy, Steven, who was this hairy, hairy Middle Eastern guy in my PT school. We did hot yoga in PT school because our professor in, in, in therapeutic exercise was like, do all these different things. And it was, we had a contest for sweatiest guy in class, just puddles. So we're sweaty. But it's a good thing. It's a good phys- It keeps me. That's cool. okay. It's okay. Absolutely, it is. It is the way of cooling the body it down. Is. Yeah. So I think it's it, your your colleague that you had on the show is right. You know, there yeah. we are collecting a lot of information that we may not be using, or we may be applying the wrong metrics right. in the wrong places. Like I, I really don't care what the heart rate is of a of an NFL quarterback. I don't care what their heart rate is of a basketball player during a game that doesn't, I don't care how many kilometers they cover in a game that doesn't actually help me rehab their knee or prepare them for basketball. But what I am interested is how many times they change direction at an angle greater than 90 degrees. 
because I know through biomechanical analysis and basic physics that the loads are greater. And so I need to prepare them to do things that have the highest demands on their musculoskeletal system. So you said that's where injuries occur, right? So, so, so you, you mentioned, you've, you've said before strength and power are skills, strength and power are skills. And I know about skills. It means that you can train them because skills are not things. And this is where like, I think I used to use these words and other people used to see words interchangeably talent and skill. And then I heard, I think it was Angela Duckworth, who's a writer, mm. wrote the book grit yep. and she laid it out and yep. I was like, oh wait, talent and skills are different talent. So yes. I remember talent you're born with LeBron was born talented, but LeBron wouldn't 100%. be LeBron unless he worked. So it's like talent times effort equals skill skill times effort equals achievement. All right. So that's my little assignment. Okay. So you say that strength and power mm -hmm. are skills. So how does, how does that perspective change the way then how athletes should train? Yeah. And I think it's uh, um, maybe to preface my mentors and all of the people that I have learned from are Eastern European. Okay. I am not Eastern European. I'm Canadian, but I sought out coaches that were either medalists in Olympic weightlifting or um, a masters of sport. Okay. So in, in Russia, you can become a master of sport and you are highly proficient in many areas. So Pavel Tsatsulin, who owns Strong First, yeah, um, yeah. somehow saw something in me and you know, spent time mentoring me and my husband. And he is one of the best movers I have ever met. He is an extremely well-accomplished athlete because he could do, you know, he has quite a, a large sort of palette of motor skills, but it was him that sort of, well, didn't sort of, he did and sort of instill this um, mantra of strength is a skill. And so the place that I always start when I'm working with athletes is, you know, to be strong and to lift a lot of weight, that's an outcome. You need to learn about the proper positions, but you also need to hold tent, learn to hold tension and so, and breathe. And so the, the some of the key parts were around power breathing and, and, and when to hold your breath, when to breathe. We call it breathing behind the shield, which is also a term used in karate. So that way the spine is stable and, and protected. Right. And so Things like we'll use the example of a pistol squat, right, which is a phenomenal expression of relative strength that most people cannot do. If I put two tennis balls in their hands, so one in one hand, one in the other hand, and I ask them to do three things, I ask them to pretend they're holding a pencil in their butt. Okay. Okay. The butt pencil. Got it. And if you're a girl, you're holding two pencils. We're going to leave it at that. Got it. Okay um brace for a punch hold your breath so hold your breath brace for a punch is sort of the two together and then squeeze the tennis balls on the eccentric phase so the downward phase of the movement i'm almost guaranteed i can triple their ability to do that exercise in about two seconds so why and how it's called the principle of hyper irradiation and it's something that i never learned in all my training in school, right? I'm a Canadian trained in kinesiology undergrad, right? Masters in sports medicine and never heard this term before. I was like, what does this mean? It was probably an Eastern, like a Russian term that got translated into English at right. some point. And Russian to English, from what Pavelist explained to me, um, doesn't translate very well. So basically, if you make a fist and you squeeze your fist just gently, you feel a bit of tension around like your lower forearm, right? right? But if you squeeze your fist even harder and you do some of those other things I said with the pencils, right. you're going to start to feel the tension move up through your arm into your thorax, right into your torso. So it's basically spreads almost like a, like a wave of, of tension and energy throughout your skeletal system. So there's certain things that we do with the body to create tension. Another another trick, um, and then they're not tricks, they're actually scientific principles, but if the hand is in contact with the ground, we teach athletes to grip the ground and to place a majority of their weight in this part of the hand where the, there's the most amount of receptors. Okay. And so if we, if we do that, that irradiates tension. Um, so it's a way to kind of amp up the nervous system, which if we, arouse and amp up the nervous system, we by default encourage a higher number of motor units to be recruited. And so part of the skill is learning 
very strong people have the ability to do two things. One, recruit more motor units to do that very precise task. They also can bypass the lower threshold motor units preferentially. And that takes practice. That's where the practice comes in. And when I say practice, I might say, okay, I want you to do push-ups, but you're going to do 30 sets of two as opposed to two sets of 30, because over 30 repetitions is very hard to create that level of tension. Right. Right. So this is, again, if we're talking, we are chasing pure, like high levels of strength and power. You know, I've had female athletes that can power clean 225 pounds, you know, at, at 160 pounds of body weight. We're talking, and these are not weightlifters. These are like athletes that compete in combative sport or team sport, rugby, wrestling, you know, very high strength power sports. And it's just a matter of teaching some of these skills or tricks, whatever you want to call them. And there's lots. I just sort of gave you a couple sure. of ideas um, that teach your nervous system how to recruit. And so it's not a matter of just passively accepting the load and moving through your the squat like a melting candle or a 14-year-old on a skateboard, right, where everything's just kind of collapsing. Right. We're going to teach, in fact, on the descent of a squat, we're teaching athletes to get taller. So really bizarre cueing that's not very conventional. And, and, and because I've learned from people that are pretty elite and I've trained pretty elite people, even if I'm doing rehab with a you know, a middle-aged mom like me, I'm still going to apply these, these right. concepts to these people, to these people and teach them these things. The only difference is the dose. I mean, they might not move as much weight, you know, as a 25 year old linebacker. Right. But the same principles. So yeah, Pavel's got some great resources and, and literature. And I've got a, a, an ebook on my website called learn to lift. And if you want, Jimmy, I'm happy to give your yeah. readership a, a discount code to download it. Well, they I'll, can throw have that, it. I'll throw that in the show notes in the uh, the, the description of the video. Okay. Um, I do want to talk it, about- It goes we, through some of this stuff. We did mm -hmm. talk about research a second ago. We were making fun of it a little bit. Yes. Well, I do want to ask you a research question. Give me one second. We're, we got to talk about ATI to keep us on the air. ATI leads the charge in PT clinical research with all 900 clinics across the country achieving top marks in CMS's merit-based incentive program. They're the team to join for career growth. If you would like to explore opportunities, visit ATIPT.com. All right, so considering your critique of research and exercise prescription, we mentioned that before, for return to play, where do you think the gap lies? And then how can we bridge it? We love this We love this bridge the gap term in uh, in, in PT, and I'm, I'm assuming other, other professions as well. So where's the gap, and then how we get around it, if you could wave, wave a magic wand and just bridge that gap? Are you going to, do you want me to comment on the, the research in the field of physical therapy? Yeah. Yeah. Let's stay, let's stay within this area. Okay. Um, I'm going to be a bit blunt and okay. say that I would prefer that they took a board, a page out of the sports science side of things. I, I find that if, if it, let's say it, the thing about PT is that there are sort of different facets, right? Like in terms of ways to treat uh, an individual. And it could be manual, and I'll break it into two categories. It could be manual therapy or it could be exercise therapy. Right. And the research in exercise therapy, it almost seems like it just repeats itself. It's the same types of exercises, the same sets and reps, the same sort of dosages. It's like they're staying in a silo. If they actually stepped out of that and started reading what, an, what a sports scientist is writing um, or an exercise, like a kinesiologist might be talking about when, because that they just live, this is all we live in is exercise. We don't sure. live in manual therapy. We, that's not what we do or that's with outside of our scope. Um, I think that there's a lot to be, to be honed because of how we look at things. Now, I'm not saying all physical therapists just read physical therapy research to, to learn their craft. Right. I think probably the very good ones go far and wide yeah. right in into different areas so i i took it upon myself to scour the exercise based re research with acl rehab um and I'll, I'll just give you a quick example so there is first of all no clear criteria to return an athlete to play at all right um even though there are like melbourne guides and things like that they're they're fraught with inc incredible amounts of assumption and, and error and I would be shocked um, or not surprised at the number of individuals that could potentially become re-injured, even passing some of those those tests. But one of the 
one of the things I came across, which I found very weird, was to allow an individual to start jogging. So let's say they have any lower body injury that's major. They had to have a surgery. So maybe Achilles, I don't know, patellar tendon rupture, ACL, whatever. That, that the individual needs to be able to leg press 1.5 times their body mass right. before they're allowed to run. To me, we're actually talking about two completely different motor tasks. Um, I would, what, the, what I do with my rehab is like, okay, if running is what something you need to be able to do, then what looks like running that is a progressive like load in terms of, of uh, mechanical forces, as well as just like sets, reps, volume, right? To be able to run for five minutes. I don't even know how many foot contacts that is in five minutes of running, but it's a lot. It's a lot of foot contacts, but they're low intensity, but they're high intensity compared to doing a body weight single leg squat, right? Like two to three times ground reaction force compared to a single leg squat. So there's really not no relationship. And that's the problem in the research is that they're saying to do these things and then these things that you're doing are going to prepare you to do these other things that are way, way different. Like it's like going to diving practice and then telling someone they're ready to play badminton as far as I'm concerned. Because so I, and I also think the other issue is progressions. Like the idea that a, a progression is a different exercise is also wrong. It's wrong when you look at motor learning, motor behavior research, because if you watch a baby learn to walk, they start with holding on to the furniture and then letting go. That's the progression. It's the same thing though. It's walking. It's just holding on to something and then not holding on to something and then walking faster and faster and faster and more proficiently, right? So what I challenge the researchers to do is to, to when it bridge the gap is to actually get a little bit more clear on the basics of biomechanics, motor behavior, and exercise physiology, and then they can start talking about exercise prescription. <laughs> so I'm a shark. I'm really critical. Most of the research I read ends up in the shredder, and I go, "Wow, okay." But that's good. That's what we want. It is. Right? We, we don't want to just accept things bluntly. We want to make sure we have people that question those things. That's the process. That's part of the process right. we're supposed to try. I also think that. There's a lot of stuff we could do really well without having to read research. Like what? I shouldn't maybe say that. Sure. Well, okay, you've run marathons, right? Yeah. If, you, if let's say, and I never have. I've never ran further than maybe 16 kilometers, whatever that is, miles. So if I said to you, okay, Jimmy, tomorrow I'm going to start training for a marathon. You don't have to be a marathon expert, but you know kind of how to train for marathons. So you could probably say, okay, this is, should be your your volumes for like your first week because you've done it. Right. So I do think that the best coaches and the best therapists are the ones that use their body and try this yeah. weird stuff. So in my ACL course, I make the, all the homework is doing the workouts. I mean, shouldn't, I mean, I, I lucked out. Some of my clinical instructors were very big on, you don't give someone an ex exercise unless you know how to do it. I love them. I right? love them. They're, they're right. Oh, Plus we look silly. Show me, do it, but for a while, right? Get really get good Not at for it. For a while. Right. Like so, my coaches used to say, you have question. You try this 10,000 times. Then you tell me, do you still have question? <laughs> That's the biggest teacher, right? Is that the best teacher? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Well, that had to be a cool experience. I love it. Did you learn from Pavel? In, in, did you go over the Soviet Union? Where were you? No, I was here in Canada. My husband and I spent about six years traveling in and out of the wow. States, learning from uh, different people. So quite a few um, high level American SNCs. Who else did you in, like? Who comes to mind that you had a good time learning? Um, I really like Rama Kifri. He's right. At, he's at UW right now. He's the head of their performance. I really like him as a coach. He understands people. He understands young men and what young men need to be told. He's old school. He's he's like around our age. We're young, though, of course. Um, I really enjoyed him. I really love Craig Liebenson, and he's more on the rehab you know, side. He's a chiropractor, but he's super curious, and he's always like, just including people in the, his discussions, yeah. you know, and he's, he's humble. And all these people, Brett Jones is another one on the East coast. He's an athletic therapist. I'm part of that strong first community. I've learned a lot from him. Um, so those are kind of my, maybe my top four people that I think are really yeah, like super knowledgeable, but just so keen to just share, like yeah. share what they've learned, share what they don't know, share like 
I mean, I'm the first one to say to my students, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. I lucked out. Learned from a lot of people early in my career, both in radio and in PT, which is the smartest people when they don't know something, they say they don't know. They like sort of wear it. I don't know. Like they're the first to admit it. Whereas the people you can tell, like, I need to, I'm going to keep talking until you assume I know this. You're like, I don't know what it is, but that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So yeah, he's kind of full of it. And it's okay to, even if you use social media to say, I don't know. These are my thoughts on this. Right, 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 right. You know, and then other people will chime in, well, what did you consider this? I'll be like, oh, no, I didn't. That's yeah. brilliant. Thank you for that. And it's a good learning experience. But a lot of times people are like, this is the way yeah. this is, you know. Well, we, I was t- one of the first episodes we did, and we've done 1200 was Eric Mera. And he said um, uh, just a great line, which is this is what we this is what we think now. This is what science this is what's told us now. And that now yeah. leaves the door open. And you are not boxed in. You're able to say, this is what I understand. Yeah. This is how I understand it now is a great way to say, this is my perspective. This is how I approach this. And it also just, it shows that you're open-minded and maybe it like, maybe it's a reminder even for no one else, for yourself to be, remain open-minded. Absolutely. And I think we can learn a lot from our clients and our patients. Ugh, yeah. Right. Like today I, I had an athlete I was working with, we're, we're rehabbing her ACL, but she's complaining about back pain. Right. So I'm going, okay. Does this bother your back? What do you notice this? Let's talk about this. And then it, the conversation ended up shifting away from the knee, which is fine. She kind of joked and said, the good news is my knee feels great. <laughs> oh, my back's bugging me. Okay. You know, and I'll collaborate with her PT on that. We'll try to f- investigate maybe why she's experiencing yeah. these symptoms, but the, the clients will often teach us a lot. Right. And then we, we can go, Oh, yeah, it was, maybe it's that let's remove that, take away that negative for a week and see if you feel better. You know, that is really our job, right? As, as coaches and PTs, we, we're not here to necessarily always have like, oh, it's definitely, this is what caused it. A lot of times we don't know. I know, but a lot of some people, um, especially in how education systems work is I come into this system and I am coming here to be able to figure out the answer right away. And how healthcare yes. sometimes works, right? We now we're just talking about systems, how systems work. And I definitely thought that's how I perceived it. I was like, I am going to be able to walk in and know the answer just from a few yeah. questions. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, there's a whole lot I don't know. But you've got to sort of keep yep. this face. But but I think I think even if I was, um, uh, Ryan Clark was a defensive back for the Steelers, American football, is a Pro Bowler, is on ESPN yeah. now. Before he was on ESPN, he gave a talk at a sports medicine conference that somehow I talked my way into. And he gave a talk. He was like the keynote. And he had this like, he didn't, he had this medical condition. So here he is, top one-tenth of a percent of the athletes in the world. He's playing professional. He's a pro bowler in the NFL. And he's going into the season and he's losing weight. He's not, he's feeling like just tired. And he's telling the team doctors and they're like, we ran all of our tests and everything is fine. You're fine. And he's like, I am not fine. fine. So he winds up like firing his team doctor, going out on his own and finds a new doctor. And the first time he sat with this new doctor, the doctor said, I have no idea what's going on, but we're going to keep checking stuff until we find something. We're just going to figure it out. And he's like, because he was, he was, he was like, I was laying in bed one day thinking I'm going to die. Cause he was like, it was that bad. Turns out he had like, it was a spleen or an anemia thing. And it turned out when he went to altitude, it really affected him or something. I might be messing, but the ultimate, sure. the thing was, it wasn't yeah. normal. And his, his message, cause this was all like sports medicine, physicians and surgeons in the room. And he's like, I didn't, he's like, here's how I define a good doctor or medical provider. Or anybody is someone who was like, I don't know, but we're going to keep working until we figure He's like, I needed a teammate. Totally. I didn't need somebody who was on a pedestal who was just like, dude, you're fine. Go back to practice. He's like, I'm done. He's like, I then said, he, he, he had said at that moment, I said, if I die from this, that's okay, because I'm with someone who's at least going to try everything until we figure it out. That person was probably a great doctor, but willing to say, I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? Come back tomorrow. And because this is important, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Those are so that's yeah, why people just need their hope supported. Yeah. Right. They, they don't, it, it's not helpful. How is that empowering if you, if you just dismiss somebody, I mean, if, if anyone knows their body best, it's that person. And he mentioned that he's like, my he's right? like, dude, he's like, I know my body. I've been training for this. This is my life every day. He's like, this is my workspace here. 
And uh, he had the whole room of these, you know, elite. Sir, it was put on by Robin West, who is this like so she's works with uh, the the commanders. She's like sports medicine, and he had the okay. whole room full of these people, dead silent, and just like wham, how he told this story. And he had them in the palm of his hand, and I hopefully a lot of them walked away going, "That's a big lesson they don't teach you in school." And hopefully they they listen to him because absolutely, he was right. yeah, yeah, because I think it's just we're insecure sometimes, right? So if we we think that if we don't tell someone what they we think they want to hear that they're we're going to come across as incompetent right and that's a you problem and yeah. you need to get over yourself is what ryan was saying he's like i don't care if you don't yeah. know the answer i need to tell you i need to hear from you that we're going to go we're going to go to to war to figure it out because this is a big deal for me because he was like i'm I'm laying here thinking i'm dying and i got this guy saying go it's on it's in your head don't worry about it like not not okay not okay from one human to another well you're absolutely you're very you're very skeptical right and and i think skeptical has like a negative connotation to it or like the sort of this i, I personally i don't i like when people are skeptical and, and challenge with good intentions right right and i heard a phrase once mm. and it sounded like it was it didn't make any sense and now it's like it makes complete sense would you it was a question would you rather get it right or be right and i was like those are the same things it's like no arguing mm. your point with no possibility, no matter what you're presented with, to ever change your mind, that means you're just trying to be right. But your goal to be right or get it right, and that was an aha moment to me. So you're you're you have skeptical mindset, which I think is great, and a willingness to challenge norms, as you're saying. You're reading research. You're saying, nope, not good enough, right? So so how has that mindset benefited your athletes, your students? Like you know, talk talk about that because it you wouldn't still be using that type of mindset if it if it hadn't, in my opinion. True. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's at first it makes the students uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Because they do, like you had mentioned, like you want to kind of come in and be fed the formula. There it is. Yeah. I want the formula. What is it? Give yeah. it to me. I'll memorize it. Correct. I'll put it on the final. Correct. <laughs> Whereas I'm going, okay, you're going to do a case study. This is your case. Come up with an, it, it, analyze the case, figure out the lowest hanging fruit that you need to solve the biggest problems you need to solve come up with an intervention and then justify it. And they're like, but is this intervention right or this intervention right? Mm. Depends on your justification. Right. So I, I think, but back to your point, that it's not so much about being right or having the right solution. It, it's having a solution that's backed by some level of evidence that that, that might be um, plausibly scientific, um, but getting people to think that way, um, which everyone talks about critical thinking. Oh, at university, we get our students to think critically. Some teachers do a great job of it. I'm really fortunate. I'm I'm basically around every single person I work with teaches like this. I, I'm at a, a very, very good university and the, the faculty are amazing. Even the research faculty that that have to teach, right? Because they do have to teach a bit, they do, they're doing a great job with making sure it's like problem-based learning and and it and also what i do is i meet with my students after they've identified the major problem so that way it i know that they're on track and i and they're they're not going to get like a really bad mark on it or something like that because my intention isn't to go oh great you found it in your case study oh sorry you didn't under, understand the problem so you got five out of 50 or whatever it's Okay, eh, not quite. Do you really think this is more important than this and why? We have a conversation and then they back to the drawing board. So I think as long as we can have it as a process, right? And we make mistakes along the way and somebody's there to kind of just have you consider other things without giving the answer away. Yeah. Um, I think that's helpful. But I do I do think that in general, people are um, wanting to be right because they're afraid to be wrong. So they chase this idea of being right. I, I'm always chasing the truth and I, you know, like what's, or the best, what's the best way to, to, to address this, this situation. Yeah. Right. So it's, um, and what's going to work for this individual, yeah. but it's gray and people don't like gray things. Oh. They like black and white and, things. And to defend students or to defend that feeling that they have is when you're going through a lot of the classes that are prerequisites 
it's physics, it's chemistry, it's it's stats. There are right and wrong answers, right? Because there's formulas, yeah. right? So I'm you're you're you know after eighth grade is ninth grade, after ninth grade is tenth grade. There's a progression, and very few things in there are okay, with the exception of where my background was, which was a lot of English and history and writing a story. And so I was That's cool. Great. I was cool with gray. I was like, dude, everything's great. Cause I mean, I interview people yeah. and people are people. You think you go in with a plan on an interview with a rock star. I got more, I got lots of those stories and think you understand which way it's going to go. And next thing you know, it's a hard right. And you're like, and your job is to adapt, but you, that's a skill too. That is a the job is a hard, right. Hard I love right, that. Man. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Oop, and now we're going this way. And for me, um, I I liked you know the clinical environment, and a lot of my classmates were ten years younger than me because I came into yeah. PT school as a second career student. And I remember thinking uh, they a lot of them got uncomfortable with it when we learned learned subjective exam. They're like, well, what's the first question you should ask? And the professor was like, well, ask this and this and this and this. I was like, well, hang on a second. Is this is the first question always the same no matter what? And he's like, well, yeah. And I was like, my my first question was never the same to anybody. I'm looking and seeing something. So my first question is always going to be different. And then I remember a classmate who I studied with was like, well, what's the second and third question? I was like, you but you don't know the answer to the first question. So the second question yeah. should come from that and the third. and the and But there was a level of uncomfortability. And then it's when I recognized like, oh, like you never had this opportunity to do those things. No. And I worked in live radio where it was like, dude, the lights on the mic, this, this is on we're and we're going. So I've, there's actually a group who does in COVID, they did zoom classes. Anyway, they're a bunch of therapists and they do uh, improv training. It's brilliant. And I keep saying, I got to oh, take the so damn awesome. class. I loved doing improv in junior high school. I, I loved it. I, it was so fun. I would love to jump. And I've said it for years that I want to do it, but it's a brilliant idea. And I think it, because you, it is a skill. And you can strengthen that mus muscle of improv. And that's sort of what that is. It's a, a gym for lateral thinking and, and things like that. So, all right. Uh, I, I love that. And I think that your background, I, I was a literary composition minor. Oh, were as you? Well. Yeah. So I agree. Like it, it, you do need to use the other side of your brain and yeah. not everything is lint like back to my original wow. point like rehab training isn't a linear process right, right. it's super messy and now i'll have a plan but best laid stick to it best laid plans yeah it's guideline right like it's guideline. i, I yeah, wrote down totally. a bunch of like talking points before we spoke and yeah. sometimes you answered Framework. sometimes you answer two or three of them in one question and i was like great those are out and now we're gonna pivot over here and then you said something where i was like oh you know what i want to keep pulling on this thread and see where that goes so right. it's, you know, an interviewer is a guide. Like I'm, you're never in charge of the interview, right? Cause it's a conversation. And like, that's a real, that to me was a cool lesson when I saw the parallels of communications in PT, in PT school, I was like, oh, I actually know something here. Great, good, okay, cool. Something, something translated, something came from 15 years standing in front of a microphone. I love it. I love the idea of improv. That's it's, brilliant. It's it's yeah. so great. I'll find I'll find the name of the group, but I think they do classes via Zoom because they're they're sp it's specifically like improv for healthcare providers, which doesn't Absolutely. make any sense, but makes complete sense, which is sort of brilliant. All right, are you ready to do three questions? Oh sure. Let's do three questions. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. Yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. Here's three questions. On the hot seat with three questions on the PT Pinecast. All right, embark on extraordinary patient care adventures with Jackson Therapy Partners. It's jacksontherapy.com. Perfect for physical therapists eager to make their mark. Discover where your skills can take you at jacksontherapy.com. All right, three questions. Uh, first question. You once we're talking about interviewing. You once considered a career interviewing serial killers. Do I have that right? Correct. correct. Our researchers find things. What drew you to that? What made you consider that? And then how do you think, how does that relate to, or how does that compare to what you do now? I've always been super fascinated in behavioral psych. It's like very why people do. It's so interesting. So I still... I don't interview serial killers, but I still talk to people and, and I'm fascinated by what led them to where yeah. they are. Right. So it's, I still kind of get to do what I thought I was going to do, but I realize that I'm now in a really positive environment versus <laughs> potentially being in a very 
dark, right. sad um, environment. Right. So yeah, that's 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 the truth. So I switched over to kinesiology after two years of forensic psychology. Mm. Two years though, so you probably read some. Mm. I mean, it's such. It's 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 why do we look at the car accident sort of thing? Because if you look, because we're able to track these things, the top podcasts and Netflix shows and stuff like that, especially actually for females, females love murder. It's so weird. We do. We're right? weird. So we're weird it's it's sex, the point of yeah. it's the point of memes too, because it's like, you know, they did a skit on Saturday Night Live. They're like, hey, I've got Saturday night, my boyfriend's not around. I'm going to stay in, pour a nice glass of, of red wine and watch nothing but murder all. It's like, why do we do that? I'm like, I don't know. But they keep making podcasts and Netflix specials about it. I don't know. It's true. It yeah. is true. So I'm not alone, which is good. <laughs> all right. I was going to ask you your favorite serial, serial killer, but I, we, yeah, it's too dark. I can't go there. Oh, yeah. yeah all right. Too dark it is. Yeah. Second question. Co uh, coaching styles. Ha like having seen so many coaching styles, working with just some of the people that you've mentioned today, what's one quirky or non-conventional method in coaching you've come across that actually works i kind of feel like two pencils and tennis balls feels quirky and non-conventional but give me something else anything come to mind well i use a lot of humor so i'm very very silly um so that would probably if, if i always ask my son because i train him and his friends in the summertime and i'm like so what can you give me any feedback like what would you say about my style because he's super honest right. he's like you're very silly mom which is, I don't know, coming from him is like right. kind of good, but kind of bad at the same time. Well, I kind of I have about the, the maturity level of a 15 year old boy good. most of the time. Well, that, yeah. so you relate, so. you're right. You are right there. Yeah. But today I trained a 50 something year old woman and I was oh. still myself. And she yeah. was looking at me like, oh. she told me that if I didn't wear gloves, cause it's quite cold out today that I would get arthritis. So the whole session, I just kept teasing her about my my arthritis i right. was going to be getting all right mm. uh, third third mm. question you're known as a truth teller we talked about that a skeptic and a truth teller share a moment where speaking your truth had an unexpected positive outcome we always talk about like people being too blunt and, and being a negative thing but talk about a positive outcome on truth well actually at a meeting with a student yesterday um because we were talking in lab about her career it's a third year course so the students are graduating either this semester or next onto their career and she was telling me about how she wanted to work for like, it's almost like insurance companies here, sending her patients or clients to do rehab with active rehab. And then we were, we were talking a little bit more about her background and she comes from like, she's a foreign student. She comes from, she had to live in her car at one point. Oh. Like we're talking like pretty tough times and a tough place where she came from. And I said to her, you know, what would it look like if you worked with um, a clientele that, were more in in control and empowered and in the driver's seat like an athlete so i said that to her in lab and i guess it it just marinated for a week because she yeah. met me in my, my office hours yesterday and she's like you're right how did you know that like i don't want to work with people that have been in a car accident and that may really only be coming to see me because the insurance company is paying for it I'm like oops so I told her the truth because I didn't see her that way after the yeah. conversation I had had with her previously. I don't see her as someone that I don't see that, but I, I didn't mean to like push her in a different direction. I just sort of told her bluntly, like, I don't really see yeah, but, based on what you've told me. Yeah. But think about what you might've just done is like drastically changed. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I don't know because you didn't, because what you did was you asked her a question, right? And yeah. She took that and you said marinated, you planted a seed and now it made her question it, which they're doing for themselves. You didn't tell her what to do. You asked her, all you did was ask. Yeah, I suppose, you know, and, and another kind of interesting part that I do in my first years is I show this video. Um, her, her name's Kelly McGonagall on she's a TED talk video. Yeah. And the title of the video is, um, is stress harmful to your health? So I asked my first years, like, how many of you think that stress is harmful to your health, right? And like 80% of the class is like, hand is up. And I'm like, okay, boom, I show the video. Basically, she talks about all the positivity right, that can be found in, yeah. in, yeah. in, yeah, in yeah. stress, right? And then at the end, all the students were kind of, are they all looking at each other like, like I kind of embarrassed them, I guess. I didn't, that's not my intention, but it's sort of like, why are we viewing stress as harmful? Why? Who taught you that? Is everything that is stressful a threat or mm -hmm. is it potentially an opportunity? No pressure, no diamonds. 
100 percent honey p as the ninth grader say right wait say that again honey p that's what the ninth graders say so now i say it honey p but um (laughs) but there is a limit there is a and the types of stress right and i saw someone do a presentation on stress or you you stress eu you stress yeah and so so is it is it bad or good we get to say this in physio a lot which is eh, it depends it depends. It depends. All right. Last it depends, thing we do, and it depends how you perceive it, right? Correct. Last thing we do on the show is the parting shot. This is the parting shot. Right. Parting shot, Carmen. This is your moment. Last, last okay. mic drop moment or soapbox statement. What do you want to leave with the audience? Have fun. Life's short. YOLO. That's what some of the kids used to say. That was like a hashtag for a while there. Yeah, parting shot. Yolo. It's true. YOLO, I know that one. I filed that one away. Yeah. Love it. They also say on God all the time now. I got to start going to the dictionary again. I don't even know what it means. And then I use it. I'm like, guys, am I using this in the right context? Yeah. And they're going, no, coach. Yeah, well, code Urban no. Dictionary. That's cheat code. Urban Dictionary. Because they even give there we go. used in a sentence. All right. Uh, parting shot brought to you by our friends from the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. Find them online at OrthoPT. .org. They're uh, industry-leading current concepts of orthopedic physical therapy, taking you from wherever you are in your career to maybe taking that OCS exam. Uh, f- uh, again, orthopt.org. Carmen, we'll put all your details so people can follow you and learn from you and, and do the whole nine in the uh, the show note. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for for Thank doing you. this. Your Majesty. I, oh, I for, I almost I had uh, royal music on the way in that I was going to play on the way out. Love it. Carmen Bot appreciates your uh, your time. I see the best conversations happen at happy hour. Thanks for coming ours. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Like what you hear? Tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. The show today is brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. The Brooks IHL offers seven on-site PT residencies, including orthopedics, women's health, geriatrics, pediatrics, sports, and neurology, as well as a neurologic OT fellowship, a competitive OMPT fellowship, and a speech therapy clinical fellowship. Therapists that complete a residency or fellowship through the Brooks IHL will markedly advance their knowledge and skills in a specialty area of practice. Learn more about how a residency or fellowship can help you advance your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. PTPinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at BuildPT.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It is hosted and produced by PT Pinecast CEO Jim McKay and CBO Sky Donovan from Marymount University. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.